All right, I want to start off with some bad news today. Uh, just some bad news for you here at church. I know you didn't come for bad news, you came for good news, but here's the bad news. Football's almost over. Anybody, you hope you guys feeling that? I mean, it's January, like we're about to not have football for six months. And uh, I don't know if you've been watching a lot of football or not, but uh, man, that's heartbreaking for some people, okay? So here in honor of the last few good games of football, uh, big games of football for this year, uh, and also in honor of coming back uh, to church after the holiday season and jumping back into our study of the book of Colossians, Here's my football summary of the book of Colossians, okay? This is uh, the analogy I've kind of been walking you through since we started, and, uh, and here's how it goes. If you're looking at the New Testament book of Colossians, it's a letter written to some Christians in Colossae by the Apostle Paul, who was a missionary who had really yet to meet these people, but he was still writing this letter because he knew of uh, their pastor and he knew of the work that God was doing in their lives. And so in chapter 1 of Colossians, the, the big picture is like Paul being the head coach. It's like if he puts on the head coach hat and gives a pregame talk. So you can imagine them all like he's writing as if they're in the locker room. And he's giving a talk like, okay, guys, no matter what happens out there on the field, whatever the end result is, right, we know who we are because we know who Christ is, that Jesus is supreme over all things. Like just like the song we sang this morning, Jesus at the center of it all, that's the story of Colossians chapter 1. And Paul is like a head coach going, guys, keep your mind on the big picture. Jesus is supreme over all things. Chapter 2, it's like he becomes the defensive coordinator. The defensive coordinator. Because there are people out there among the Colossians who aren't believers in Jesus, but they aren't mad at Jesus. They actually even have an affinity for Jesus. And Paul was warning them about the attacks of these opponents. He's saying, here's the strategies of your opponents as they're going to try to inform you and influence you that Jesus isn't the main thing, that he's just one of many things. And that's sort of the message of chapter 2. It's, it's, a, it's a warning against like the, the main cultural ideal of that day in the first century, which was that you know, Jesus is, has a place, but he doesn't have the supreme place. And so Paul's like the defensive coordinator going, hey, guys, you just got to be ready for this. You got to know the strategy of your opponents and withstand it. Stand on the truth and what we know, that Jesus is supreme. And then chapter three, it makes another turn. And Paul is like taking off the head coach, taking off the defensive coordinator hat, and he's putting on the offensive coordinator hat. And he's saying to these Christians in Colossae, here are some ways that you can take personal responsibility for your growth in Christ. Some things you can actually put into motion, like some plays you can run, so that you can start to see growth in Christ in your life. If he is supreme over all things, and he's brought us onto his team, what does it look like to have growth in that? to become more and more a part of his team. And he uses this analogy. At the beginning of chapter 3, if you've got a Bible and you want to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3, if not, I'll put some verses on the screen for you. But if you're looking at it, you, you notice that he uses some phrases kind of off and on through the beginning of chapter 3, put off and put on. And he's talking about clothes. He's talking about when Jesus brings you onto his team, there are some things you need to put off. Like, for example, your old uniform. 
like the way you used to live before you met Jesus, before he brought you onto his team. You need to put off those things. In fact, put those things to death. You know, like that's not you anymore. All of the ways that you used to live before Jesus, those are are dead and buried, okay? And then put on the new uniform. Put on the new identity, the new reality of what it looks like to live a life following Christ. And so there's some things that you can actually do, make part of your life to exemplify what it means to have identity with Christ by faith. Now, all this talk about clothing just reminded me of something as I started my like yearly Bible reading plan this year. It reminded me of the story of Adam and Eve. I know we're talking about the New Testament in the book of Colossians, but maybe if I could just take it a little aside and show you how this fits in the big picture of the Bible. Going all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis, we know that God created everything, that he created everything good. He created humanity and Adam and Eve, and they were very good, right? He was so pleased with that. He had a relationship with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the Garden of Eden. But then something happened. Adam and Eve were tempted to choose their own way over God's way. And they actually rebelled against the one limitation that God had given them, which was God said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, enjoy it all, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. Well, then the tempter, Satan, comes along and says, did he say that really you're going to die? Did he really mean that? Surely he doesn't mean it. Actually, he just doesn't want you to be like him. Well, Adam and Eve gave into that temptation. They ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They rebelled against God's plan and his limitation that he had given them. And that is what we call sin. And it caused a separation between them and God, not only physically, but also in their hearts. You remember what happened in the story. They felt shame. You ever felt shame? But the Bible tells us something really unique. It says that they realized they were naked. They realized they were naked. And they tried to cover themselves up because of shame. They tried to cover themselves. They tried to fashion their own clothes so that they might become acceptable to God. But even fig leaves were not enough to to cover the shame that they felt because of their sin. So the story goes on. Even though there are consequences to sin and they had to leave the garden, God in his grace sacrificed an animal. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 3. He sacrificed an animal and he took the skins of the animal and made them a proper covering so they didn't have to live in their shame. Now, what that is a picture of, what it points to, is the story the Bible tells, that God in his grace, even though we are people who have rebelled against him and are full of shame, God in his grace would ultimately have a plan to give his own son as a sacrifice for sin so that the blood of Jesus could be a covering for our sin so that that is what we put on in order to become acceptable to God now what most religions will tell you is that you need to fashion your own clothes like Adam and Eve did put in the effort 
To become acceptable to God, you've got to do certain things. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to give so much money. You've got to do the, these, these good deeds, etc., 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 in order to become accepted to God. But the truth of the Bible and what Christianity teaches is the exact opposite. It's different than every other religion. It says that you cannot become acceptable to God based on what you do. You can only become acceptable to God by faith in what Jesus has done. In dying on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, so that Jesus then can become our perfect covering, our clothes, to make us acceptable to God. Now, if we believe in this truth, that means, and this is what, where Colossians is going, that we have to forsake our old ways, that we can't continue walking in those ways. Those can't be the story of our life. But now, because of faith in what Jesus has done, we have new clothes to put on, a new covering. We're in a new way of life with a new reality and new priorities and new people also to be around. We'll see this in a few seconds. But this is where we're going with Colossians chapter 3. So I hope now you're brought up to speed in what we're talking about. And then Paul jumps in in verse 15 of Colossians 3, and we're going to see four realities that define the life of a believer in Jesus, somebody with faith in Jesus. So first things first, uh, right off the top, we're going to see that life with Christ is ruled by the peace of Christ. Life with Christ is ruled by the peace of Christ. This is what verse 15 says. I hope you're looking at it with me. It says, let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, Rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ, which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Now, peace of Christ, what is that? And how do we get it? And then how do we let it rule? Well, the first thing you have to recognize is that you can't have the peace of Christ until you experience peace with God. And going back to our story of Adam and Eve, we know that all humanity is in a broken relationship with God. We don't have peace with God. In fact, the Bible tells us that what our sin does to us and God in a vertical relationship is it breaks that off. It puts us in a position of debt to God that we could never repay. Now, paying off debt's hard. You guys maybe are in that, you've been in that, you're paying off college loans or credit card debt or whatever. You know, like, it's hard to get on top of it. Well, sin debt is even bigger. Like, you would take you a lifetime, a thousand lifetimes, a million lifetimes would not be enough good effort to pay for the debt that your sin puts you in before God. Yet God, in His grace, and because of His love for us, gave Jesus Christ as a sacrificial payment for the debt of sin, so that if we respond to him in faith, our debt is wiped away and we are restored into a relationship with God. We can once again have peace with God through Christ. This is the only path to knowing what it's like to be ruled by the peace of Christ, is to first have peace with God through Christ. So I wonder if that's a step you've taken yet to put faith in Jesus, that he would cover your sins by his death on the cross, pay your debt, and restore your relationship with God 
now and for eternity. That's not something you can like slip into by being in the right family. That's not something you can like grow up into by going to church. That's not something that you can just sort of accidentally trip your way into. It has to be a decision that you make and you own to say, I know I've sinned. I know my relationship with God is separated and I'm in a debt I can't pay. The only way I can be restored to God is by putting my faith in Jesus. If that's you today, if you want to take that step, we want to help you with that. In fact, I'm going to be available after the service. We can chat a little bit more about that and I can help you take that step. You can be any age, any stage, wherever you are, God wants to meet you there and bring you into an eternal relationship with him. That's that vertical peace that we can experience between us and God. But to let the peace of Christ rule also has a horizontal implication. That there's a need for peace among us as the church. In fact, this whole chapter is talking about how we relate to one another because of Jesus. And so it says, let the peace of Christ rule. Well, in verse 15, it says we are called in one body. In one body, we're called. So we have that vertical piece, but now we're talking about this horizontal piece. And Paul is building on this reality that the church is sort of just a new way about seeing life with other people in general. It's, it's not just an activity we go to. It's actually a community of people who have been rescued by Jesus. But it's not just a local community. It's also a global community. And so it's a very diverse community. It doesn't happen in a bubble. Church is, is so much bigger than we thought, right? And it includes people who are so different than us. Here's how I want to describe it to you today. The world puts people in boxes like Lego sets. You ever walked up in the, on the toy aisle at a store like Walmart, Target, and you see just the whole, there's a whole aisle of Lego sets, right? And it's all the yellow boxes and the blue boxes and everything, and the Lego City, and then you got a Lego Creator, and you got all these cool, okay, if you don't know all that, it's because you don't have a seven-year-old like me. Okay, so I got a seven-year-old boy. We do Legos all the time. Okay, so uh, peop, the world puts people in boxes like Lego sets. And what I mean is, the world puts you in a box based on your ethnicity, your race, your economic status. Uh, you know, your culture, your subcultures that you're a part of, whatever it is, and you sort of have a piece where the world tells you that you fit and that that's it for you, right? And that you just got to figure that out. And then at some point, you got to figure out how to relate to everybody else in all the other boxes. And then nobody can really figure that out. Now, the gospel, the good news that Jesus restores humanity's relationship to God and puts us in a community, adopts us into God's family, the gospel does what no store will do. Because the reality of Legos being in sets, that really only exists in stores. Like, unless you're a psychopath, I mean a, a collector, a collector of Legos, like, you know what happens at every kid's house who owns Legos? They all get broken up and, and just like compiled into this massive bucket of Legoness, Right? And it's, all, it's always for good reason, like, because I want to use that piece to build something bigger and better. Well, that's what God does. God takes away the boxes. He gets rid of the boxes. There are no more instructions for him for a little box. Like, what God has in mind is a mega build, 
okay, where he's taken all of us who believe in Jesus as different as we are, and which, by the way, if you want to know the kinds of different, go back to verse 11 in Colossians chapter 3, and you'll see some examples of different kinds of different. He takes the kinds of different we are, compiles us all into one thing so that he can make something big and huge and creative and beautiful and perfect. And the Bible calls this the new creation. That this is actually where all of history is moving toward. That God is at work building his kingdom, building his perfect reality and relationship with humanity, restoring the way it was intended to be at creation. That's what God is doing. But until that reality comes to be and we experience life with God and life with one another in the new creation, we are a jumbled mess of Lego pieces that all go, come from different boxes that are just thrown into one big tub. And we have to figure out how to do life together. It's like, how does one piece from one set fit with another piece from another set? What happens when those pieces don't really go together like we think they should or, or they come into conflict or they don't look just exactly right? Well, it's like we need something to govern how we act together and how we relate to one another. And Colossians 3 says that thing is the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. And that word rule is literally, it means to act as an umpire. You didn't know baseball was in the Bible either, did you? You got Legos, football, baseball. This is great, right? The peace of Christ acts like an umpire. So when life throws you a curveball, you look to the peace of Christ to determine how you respond to it. When a person throws a fastball at you, like not at the home plate, but at you, like they're trying to hit you and knock you down. You look to the peace of Christ before you respond to that action. We yield to a higher authority before we make our own responses to the circumstances or to the people in our lives. This is what Paul means. When we put on the uniform of Jesus, when we live into this new life, we put this peace of Christ on as a ruler, as a governor, as an umpire in our lives to help us see how do we respond to the things that are happening to us and among us. So does this life circumstance, does this situation I find myself in, does it jeopardize my eternal relationship with God as a Christian? Well, look to the peace of Christ. In fact, just a few verses earlier, it says, no, you, you are in verse 12. It says, you're chosen. You are holy. You are dearly loved. And so the answer obviously is no. no nothing can put into jeopardy my relationship with God for eternity. My faith is in Jesus. Romans 8 tells that story too. Neither height nor depth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so then, knowing the peace of Christ, you go, Okay, exhale, we're good. Okay, how about this? Do you, do you feel guilty about the choices you make? Or do you feel like you're distant from God? 
because maybe you haven't had enough devotional time or whatever it is, and then you go like, kind of get some anxiety about that. Let the peace of Christ call strike or ball on that, right? So look to the peace of Christ, and then you go, okay, well, how about verse 13 in chapter 3 of Colossians, right there, where it says, the Lord forgives you. You go, exhale, okay, the Lord forgives me. What about that person in your life? That hurts you. And I know this is going to probably even, it may even bring up a wound for you. What, what about something that someone said to you that just stuck with you? You know that's the weird thing about words. They say sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Except that I'm 37 and I can remember what somebody said to me in high school that hurt me. And I can picture their face and I can think of it like it was yesterday, right? So is that really true? I don't know. Words seem to stick with us. Well, what do I do with that? How do I respond to that when somebody hurts me with their words or somebody acts against me? What do I do? I look to the peace of Christ. And even though it might cause me anxiety or it might sound really tough, I look at it and I see, well, gosh, even there in verse 13 of chapter 3, just as Christ has forgiven you, so also forgive others. And I go, okay, okay, the peace of Christ rule. I'll forgive that's what it means to let the peace of Christ rule, to become the umpire in your life. So that can call strikes and balls and let you know how to respond to the circumstances and the people in your life. The second thing is in verse 16. Verse 16 says, life uh, with Christ is lived in gospel community. This is what Paul writes. Life with Christ is lived in gospel community. He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. And what is the word of Christ? Now, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about the Word of God, meaning the Bible, and that's true. That is the Bible. In fact, the Word of Christ is the Bible. John, the Gospel of John, tells the story about how Jesus is the Word of God, that, that he was there at the beginning of creation, and God spoke into existence, and God's Word was Jesus, and Jesus is the Word. And there's this beautiful picture of uh, God and the Son and the Holy Spirit and how that plays out into eternity. So we know kind of that part of it. But even in Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul uses a similar phrase. He says, the word of truth, which is the gospel. The word of truth, which is the gospel. This good news that Jesus restores our relationship to God through his sacrificial death. Right? So, okay, so the word of truth, the gospel, the word of Christ. And then chapter 1 establishes that Jesus is the truth. And so we can kind of like A plus B equals C. The word of Christ is the gospel. The word of Christ is the gospel. The same message that leads us to peace with God unites us as his people in community with one another. And this is not a burden to bear. This is a wealth to be enjoyed. You ever heard someone go like, oh, I gotta go to church. <laughs> so I gotta do that thing for my church again, you know. Yeah, it just makes it sound like it's a burden to bear, but the truth of the gospel that puts us in community with one another isn't that it's a burden to bear, it's that it's a wealth to be enjoyed. So I was thinking about wealth. 
What does that look like? And I thought of Donald Duck. <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, do you remember Scrooge McDuck, that character? Who, like, Uncle Scrooge, like, he was always, like, the rich uncle in the Donald Duck storyline. And he had this massive mansion. And then connected to his mansion was a, um, like, a, like a giant vault that was just full of heaping piles of gold coins. And he would jump off of a diving board into his gold coins and just swim around, like, backstroke through his wealth, just enjoying all of it. Well, that's sort of what this means when it says, let the word of Christ, the gospel, dwell richly among you. That there's a wealth of the gospel that is to be enjoyed. Now the difference between Scrooge McDuck's gold and the gospel is the gospel was never meant to be enjoyed alone. Isn't that funny how in that cartoon he's always by himself swimming in the gold? until the three little boys jump in and, you know, make him upset. <laughs> but the gospel is a wealth that was never meant to be enjoyed alone. The gospel that's simple enough for a child to understand, yet rich and glorious enough that we could spend the rest of our lives never comprehending an ounce of its depth. This good news of Jesus that's meant to be enjoyed together. The word of Christ doesn't dwell in a vault within us. It dwells richly among us. In fact, the best word for here is y'all, right? In us East Texans, let it dwell richly among y'all. That's a more literal translation here. There's community around the wealth of the gospel. The gospel becomes, as it makes our, its home among us, the gospel becomes our source of wisdom. That's why at Moberly, our top value at our church is biblical truth, that we always go to the Bible, the word of God, for biblical truth, for, uh, to be our guide for life and practice of the faith. We always turn back to the Bible. We'll read it in every sermon. We'll open up the Bible every time you're here. We're encouraging you to daily be formed by the Bible and interacting with it. Because the, not because it's a burden to bear, but because it's a wealth to be enjoyed. And then we do that in community together, right, as it dwells richly among us. It becomes the substance for teaching and warning so that now, you know, every time we come together, if we're not using the Bible, man, we're off base, okay? So we've got to use the Bible, even if it's hard truth to talk about. We've got to open it up and talk about it, okay? So that's how it dwells richly among us. And then the more of the gospel we take in, the more it overflows from us through things like singing. Paul says, do this by, by singing psalms and, and hymns and spiritual songs. And I know there's like people in the room who just, <laughs> I love to sing, right? But I know I'm, I'm rare, okay? I know most people, like, when it comes to church and singing, it's like, okay. Look, I love you too, okay? But it, this is the deal. When the gospel overflows from your life and dwells richly among us, it will, you will exude things like singing. It'll become evidence of what God's doing in your life. There's psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's sometimes when it's, 
something that we don't even fully comprehend, but we just, man, we're going for it. We're getting in there. Okay, but let me just tell you this. Psalms and hymns, psalms, of course, from the scripture, we get those, and hymns, uh, of course, in Paul's day, they didn't have the hymnal, right, but they did have other sorts of hymns, and then spiritual songs. He's not giving instruction for the kind of music or the genre of music that has to be used in church. People have used this verse to actually say that, because there are people still today arguing over what kind of music is appropriate for church. But really what's happening is he's showing these kind of broad categories that are sort of ever broadening, and he's not emphasizing the kind, he's just actually emphasizing the variety of kinds of music, of genres of music that we can use uh, to worship God. In fact, he's kind of saying that the gospel is so rich and so powerful that there are kinds of music that haven't been invented yet that we need to invent in order to encapsulate just another aspect of worship for God. So we don't need to get stuck kind of in our rut. We need to be like thinking bigger when it comes to things like singing to God, okay? Because the gospel is that big. It's that powerful. And that's how the gospel will dwell richly among us. But the key word is that word, dwell. It's the word dwell. These exercises in gospel community, the singing, the admonishment, the teaching, the wisdom, these exercises in gospel community ought to be as true of us like on a Tuesday at 2 p.m. or a Friday at 7 p.m. as they are on a Sunday at 11 a.m. That's what it means for the gospel to dwell richly among us. Now, can I just be a pastor to you for a second? That means one of the greatest steps you can take to be part of a church is to go beyond the Sunday service. Now, I would say this to you in love, and because I've experienced this in my own heart and life, as I get into relationship with other people, a great way to do that is through our connect groups. You join a connect group, you start to know people, and people start to know you. You get into people's lives, you start texting each other, you start doing prayer requests, you start providing for each other your needs, you're bearing one another's burdens, as the scripture calls us to do. I mean, all these good things are happening, and then you go, wow, this is so good for me. It's a wealth to be enjoyed, not a burden to bear. So that's what it means for the gospel, the gospel to, to have community, us to have community around the gospel, for the, for the word of Christ to dwell richly among us. Okay, let's keep going. One more verse. Verse 17, and the point is that life with Christ is lived for the reputation of Jesus. Life with Christ is lived for the reputation of Jesus. I don't know if you try to maintain a good reputation for yourself, a good name for yourself, but this idea of name is reputation. And look at what verse 17 says. With that in mind, it says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul is taking what he already established in chapter one. Do you remember the head coach, the pregame talk? Jesus is supreme over all things. 
Jesus is the main thing. He's not just one of many. The big picture is about Jesus, who is creator of all things. Everything holds together by him. He sustains everything from the, the smallest you know, microbe to the, to the greatest king, uh, to the largest country. He sustains it all to the stars in the sky. Everything is because of him, right? And so Paul is taking that universal reality of Jesus' supremacy, and now he's applying it to yours and my personal life to go, what I say matters because it either accurately represents the truth of Jesus as being supreme over all things or it's a rebellion from the truth of Jesus being supreme over all things. What I do with my life, my comings and my goings, my my time with people, the way I spend my days, my work, all these things are either things that, that proclaim the supremacy of Jesus or they rebel against the supremacy of Jesus. There's not really a gray area. Like it's either one or the other, everything you say and everything you do. And so let us be people, Paul is saying, that Anything, everything, whatever it comes out of our mouth, whatever we put our mind to, our feet to, or our hands to, would it be that we, uh, we proclaim the truth, that we accurately represent who Jesus truly is as supreme over all things and supreme over my life? When we do something in the name of Jesus, we represent him to the world for who he truly is, the Lord over all things. So what would happen this year if you ran everything you say and do through that filter? The filter of representing Jesus and upholding his reputation to the world. So you go, does this social post represent Jesus for who he truly is? Do those text messages represent Jesus for who he truly is? Does my budget represent Jesus for who he truly is? Does the way I work when I go to work represent Jesus for who he truly is? Does my response to my kids or my spouse represent Jesus for who he truly is? You start to think about that and you ran everything through that filter. How different would your life be? Now that's a lot to take in. And you go, well, I don't even know where to start. I'm not sure. I mean, you're talking about the peace of Christ applying that to my life. You're talking about the word of Christ. And you're talking about huge sweeping changes for my life. You're talking about everything I say and do. What are we not talking about? Well, did you notice that Paul weaves one practical application through all three verses here? One practical application in these big picture things, something you and I can do today to make a difference in our lives. This is the last point, that life with Christ is evidenced by gratitude. Gratitude is laced in these verses. Verse 15, the end of it says, be thankful. Be thankful. You know, gratitude that that God has restored my relationship with him through Christ. I have peace with God and I have the peace of Christ to govern my relationships with other people who follow Jesus. Wow, God, thank you for that. Uh, You know, verse 16, with gratitude in your hearts. Gratitude that we have a community of people centered around Jesus that can encourage one another, that can lift each other up, that can hold each other, that can bear each other's burdens, that can push each other into more faithfulness and more experience of the wealth of the gospel. 
Verse 17, giving thanks to God. Gratitude that I can know and live for the Lord over all things. Wow, thank you, God, that I can be part of his bigger plan. I mean, I'm just one Lego brick in a huge tub of Legos. I don't always see how I fit. But God says everything I do and say matters for his eternal kingdom. So, man, that is a, a responsibility that I'm so I'm grateful to be known that the God of the universe sees every single Lego brick and knows exactly where it goes and how it fits and how it's supposed to be used for eternity. Wow, thank you, God, that you know me and allow me to know you. The interesting thing about gratitude, just to wrap this up, is that gratitude has like a reciprocal relationship with your life. Here's what I mean. Most people think gratitude is just a response to something good in your life. It's a reaction. You know, something we do, like every November when Thanksgiving comes around, we look back and we go, what do we have to be grateful for? What can I be thankful for? But gratitude is also a habit you can form that will change the way you see the world. It's like smiling. You guys, are, you hear this about smiling? Like most people think, well, I don't have much to smile about. But did you know that scientists say that if you would smile, even though you have nothing to smile about, that something neurological happens, like neurons start firing in your brain and you start receiving dopamine and all this, these, these positive reinforcements in your brain and you actually wire new pathways in your brain and become a happier person? Just because you took that step to go, I'm going to smile, even if it feels like I'm going to force myself to smile. And then your life gets better. Simple, right? Seems like something we could all practice. Well, gratitude is the same way. It works the same way. It's not just a reaction to good things. It's, you aren't waiting for something good to happen in your life so you can be grateful. It's finding things to be grateful for. It's developing the habit of gratitude so that you can see the world differently. So do you want to become more aware of the peace of Christ? Practice gratitude. Do you want to become, uh, have a deeper appreciation for the gospel and the community of believers that God's put you in? And practice gratitude. Do you want to have more of your life reflecting who Jesus truly is? Practice gratitude. It will happen. You will see it begin to happen and to grow. In fact, verse 15, that simple sentence that just says, be thankful, the verb there, be, it's an active verb. And, and maybe even though it's kind of clunky to say it in a sentence, the better way to say it is become thankful. Become thankful. Put it into practice and see the difference it will make in your life. Gratitude is the muscle we flex to show the work of God happening in our lives. Gratitude is evidence of our transformation it's a way of relating to God and relating to others that most clearly reflects our new way of living because Jesus has brought us onto his team. And the old is gone. The resentment, the selfishness, all those things. And now we're living into this new life in Christ. And there's a lot to be thankful for. That's what Colossians 3 has to say to you today. What would happen if 2023 was marked 
by gratitude. How would you be different by the end of this year if you put that into practice? I hope that you have something to respond to today because when we speak from the word of God, it ought to stir something in you. And you ought to think about what God might be doing in you that helps you leave here different than the way you came. And so we're going to give you a chance to respond. Haley is going to come with her team, and they're going to lead us in one more song this morning. You're going to have a couple minutes here that you can either just respond personally in your heart and go, okay, God, I want to be grateful. You know, show me what I have to be grateful for. That's a great place to start. Maybe you need to be in that place where you say, I'm ready to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin, to restore my relationship to God. And if that's you today, we want to help you do that. And so even in the time of this last song, we want to help you take that step. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to have a chance to sing this song. And while we're standing and singing, if you want to just meet me at the back of the room, then that's great. I want to meet you there. We can shake hands, exchange names, and we can talk, and I can listen. I can pray for you. Uh, or we can help you put your faith in Jesus, that your life will be changed from here to eternity. Make a response to God today. Let me pray for you, and then we'll sing. God, you are so good. Eternal king over all things, supreme over everything. And you see me. You see us. You loved me enough to send Jesus to make the payment for my sin. Not just me, but for every person. Wow, God, this is an unbelievable gift. And we want to have gratitude towards you today. God, I pray that you would make us people of gratitude, that we would always remember that we're nothing without you, and that we can do nothing without you. God, help us make the appropriate response to you today, to have courage even if it means life change to step into what you are calling us to. I pray in Jesus' name.